Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So, Breed, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Will, uh, I have to say. You know, I'm taught today. Uh, I didn't think that I was going to enjoy doing a class on Zoom because I love the classroom and love interacting with students, you know, getting in their faces in the classroom. But I have to say that it's given my teaching almost a sense of urgency for the very reason we just experienced, you know, are we going to have sound? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's going to go out. It's going to work. You know, the basic conditions of teaching are in peril. Exactly. <laughs> it gives every class meeting a kind of urgency, and I've got to say that the students have really kind of impressed me. That's great. How, you know, they've been under enormous, you know, stress and and disappointment to some degree. Definitely. And yet, you know, I've just been grading some papers on John Milton today, and they're just really, really good. That's, that's really, that's really cool. And do you mind if I call you Reed, by the oh, way? Oh, please. Of course. Okay. Of course will. Uh, so Reed, and for the audience, I just want to paint a picture. You were my favorite professor in undergrad and for you, you would come into class and, um, and I probably got the most out of your class for my like modern thinking, yeah. just how I think about the world from yeah. reading everything we read in your class and yeah. in your teaching. But I just want to paint a picture. You would come into the class and you would take your shoes off. Yeah. And you would lecture without notes. For, you know, you could go an hour and hour and you would just, it, it was the most amazing. You, I, I don't think it's kind of like watching Michael Jordan play basketball or something. It's yeah. like, I don't think many people ever reach the level of understanding about subjects like this that you do or anything. Well, the, you know, the, the method of, I, I don't know if I did this in your class, but sometimes I start lecturing before I'm actually in the room, like one foot out, one foot in. And it's like, bam. And I think part of what I want to do is to sort of shock my students. Like, this is weird. I, I kind of want that response. This is weird. Right. And, and also, uh, you know, uh, there's complete focus on the past. I want them to get the sense that what happens in this room is special. What we're doing in here is different from what you're going to do outside the room. Uh, so everything that I do, and I, you can't do it on Zoom, really, uh, to, to have that kind of dramatic effect uh, on them. I don't think you can recreate, but I want them to think that studying history, that the past is whack, is wacky and really intriguing and perplexing and, and, and that what we're doing in this room is really special. I mean, that's what I want to try to get at. And I like your point, Will, about how it helped you think about the modern world. Because if you think about my approach, what I say to my students is I'm just a historian. I don't have, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian, I'm not going to solve for you the nature of truth or whether there's God or any of that. Um, I want us to focus on what the people in the past cared about. What did they care about? What did they believe? What were they willing to fight for? What were they unsure about? Uh, to really focus my students rigorously on understanding the past so that once they ask, what has this got to do with me? Then they'll be able to answer that question meaningfully. 
because the alternative is a kind of modernist narcissism, that the past matters only to the extent that it mirrors us, and that I'm only going to care about those writers in the past who agree with me. And I really want to get my, my modern students out of that framework. It's not that it's not relevant, it is. But relevant can be, relevance can be purchased really cheaply. Like you're not really drawing relevance from these texts because you haven't really bothered to understand them in their own terms. You're basically just imposing upon those texts and those writers, those people who are long dead, you're imposing upon them your own identity. So I'm really pleased to hear that you drew lessons from it. And I think you probably did it in the right way, that you really took the time. And I, re I remember some of your papers. You really took the time to study history rigorously so that once you applied it to your own condition, you did it fairly. You, 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 you didn't do it cheaply. And by the way, I mean, I'm glad you asked me, uh, talked about my teaching. One of the reasons I'm not ready to retire yet is because I really think that at UNC, uh, maybe everywhere, but at UNC, the study of history is imperiled. If you look at the new curriculum, which was designed in large part by social scientists and natural scientists, they're minimizing the extent to which students have to study history at all. This is incredibly unfortunate. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's at odds with what I feel my students understand. It's like these people my age who are designing a curriculum that they think is appropriate for students who are 20. Whereas in fact, if you just look at the Silent Sam uh, controversy, right? Uh, what students understood about the Silent Sam controversy is that you can claim anything about Silent Sam until the history is brought in. And, and, and when the history is brought in, wait, you can't just claim anything because you, you, you can't just make it up. And my sense is that if the political culture has taught us anything in America right now is that if you don't have history, you can just make it up. It can exactly. be what you say it is. Uh, and, and, and that's terrifying to me. So my sense is that you know, the study of history rigorously is enormously relevant to the modern age. The study of the 17th century, enormously relevant to the modern age. Scientifically it is, politically it is, but we have to be historians. Uh, it's interesting when I teach theology or religion, my students have no idea what my religious beliefs are. They're curious, they ask me, but I never talk about it with them until after the semester's over. And that really is pleasing to me that I can present a point of view that doesn't coincide with mine and you don't know whether it's my point of view. That's because I'm exerting the historical imagination. I'm able to enter into someone else's subject position and recreate that subject position compassionately and compellingly, even though I might not agree with it. So I just want to just because this is probably the only podcast I'm ever going to be on. That's I great. To, thank you very much uh, for this platform. I just want to make a plea for how much we need history in 21st century America. Uh, and, you know, guys, I really think my 20-year-old my students understand it. Not that the designers of curricula at UNC understand it, but, but my, I think my kids understand it. Um, so anyway, enough about that. Next question. <laughs> well, Reed, maybe Will's going to ask you this, but can you go back and swerve and pick uh, up where we started uh, and didn't record? Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get yeah, there. I sure can, uh, David. Uh, so one of the issues that, that, that is raised with the 17th century and with some of the work I've done is the extent to which we're already encountering a, a modern world in the 17th century and, and a secular world. And this book, The Swerve, was written by a very distinguished scholar at Harvard, who also is a very popular writer. He's, he's really gotten the distinction of, of being both. He's a very serious scholar, but 
also, you know, his books are in, you know, the airport and the airport uh, bookstore. He wrote a book called The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. And The Swerve is a reference to uh, an, a, a physics idea uh, that goes back to an ancient poet called Lucretius. And Lucretius has always been fascinating to me because Lucretius, uh, he lived in the first century before Christ, the so first century BCE, uh, and he was an Epicurean. Uh, and one of the things that has to be established about Epicurean thought is that through the medieval centuries, it was completely misunderstood. The idea of the Epicureans as hedonist in the sense of they love carnal pleasures, they love gluttony, they love promiscuous sex is completely wrong. Uh, that they did believe uh, that life should be pursued uh, for pleasure, but by pleasure, they meant simple health of body and tranquility of mind. This is not ambiguous. That's absolutely what they believed. And the ancient Epicureans, including Lucretius, including his, his mentor Epicurus, for whom the philosophy is named, actually didn't li live gluttonously or excessively at all. The reverse. Uh, Epicurus was famous for eating a very spare diet, drinking very little wine, drinking only water, eating roots uh, and vegetables. And, and so they got villainized and demonized and caricatured over the Christian Middle Ages uh, for reasons we can get into later. Anyway, their moral philosophy of pleasure defined as I just defined it was based on a physics. And this is where the swerve comes in and this is where modernization comes in. The physics was actually a physics of atomism, uh, which we think is a modern idea. Uh, the world's made out of particles, of atoms. Right. Uh, ancient Epicureans argued that the, the world's made out of two constituent uh, things, uh, particles, atoms, and emptiness, what they call the void or vacuity. And these atoms are very different from our atoms. For The very word atom means indivisible. So you could not break the ancient atom. Uh, it was the only thing, in fact, in the physical world that you could rely upon. Everything else was breakable. Everything else was mutable, but not the atom. And the idea was that these atoms sort of fell through a kind of infinite space. And by the way, they're among the first to have the idea of an infinite universe. So they're atomist. Their universe is infinite. Uh, they're also the basis for science fiction in as much as they believe that out there in that infinite universe, you have these different worlds and these worlds are inhabited by beings that we don't really know much about. Uh, but the swerve comes up when Lucretius, who's a poet, but also a philosopher, he wrote this amazing epic called On the Nature of Things, but it's a philosophical epic. It's not like Homer. It's not like, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid. In fact, it's very anti-militaristic. Lucretius lived through civil war. He hated warfare, war, war and violence. Uh, the poem, which is called On the Nature of Things, is filled with condemnation of war and violence. And that's one of the reasons why the 17th century was really interested in it. They also it was a generation of civil war and violence. Anyway, his, his physics is that he's trying to explain why the atoms collide when they do. Uh, his, and his argument is they're all falling sort of through space, through infinite space, and they collide because they swerve. Uh, they swerve and they hit each other. And sometimes when they hit each other, their shapes entail that they can't make compounds, but sometimes you know, there's a kind of chance meeting of atoms that can come together and, 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 and make a compound. And then they end up making larger compounds and larger worlds. So the swerve is a way to account for uh, 
you know, the collision of atoms that make up compounds. Well, Greenblatt turns this into a metaphor for how in the Renaissance period, the rediscovery of Lucretius's poem meant a swerving away from the Middle Ages and from a world gotcha. dominated by religion and the church. Uh, and to, to be fair uh, to his argument, there's some truth in that because if the moral philosophy of pleasure is founded on physics, on atomism, the idea is you need to live a tranquil life. You need to have a very spare diet. You need to be very healthy because you're made of atoms and those atoms are very volatile. They're, they're always jostling. And so because you're constituted by atoms, you need to really be calm. You really need to be tranquil and you need to be healthy because you're trying to keep your atoms together, right? But uh, so there's a physics, there's a moral philosophy on top of that, but Epicurus and Lucretius added on top of that a theology. Interesting. And this is where they get interesting. Uh, I mean, they're already interesting, but their theology went something like this. There are gods, they exist. They're not atheist in the modern sense of the word, but from the Renaissance sense of the term, and even from the ancient sense of the term, they're atheists because their gods don't care about the universe. They, are, they aren't creators. They're not destroyers. They, they don't intervene. Uh, they're not going to punish you. They're not going to punish you in this life. They're not going to punish you in the next life. By the way, there's not going to be a next life because when your atoms break down into atoms, you're done. There's no immortal soul that's going to linger in the next world. Will Jarvis, Reed Barber, David Jarvis, there's no more. Your atoms will, will break down and then they'll reform and make other people. But what made you, you is gone. So they're, they're gods, but they're what we call anti-providential. They don't, they don't care. In fact, they're models of tranquility. They're just chilling out, out there in the universe, right? So for, for Greenblatt, uh, this basically represented, this idea represented a break from Catholicism, a break from the medieval church and the secularization of, of the period. Now I should say, that what made Lucretius important to my period, which is basically the 16th century and, 5th and 17th century, is that manuscripts of this poem on the nature of things, they were lost for really? they Nobody could read Lucretius uh, after about, after Cicero. Cicero and some, some ancients read him, but then the poem got lost. Well, in the 15th century, some book hunter uh, was going around in medieval monasteries looking for manuscripts and found a copy. Oh, no way. And, and once they found a copy, edition after edition of Lucretius started to be published, people started to realize that the Epicureans had been caricatured and gotten wrong. But uh, what took hold right away was the philosophy of pleasure, uh, because Christians in the Renaissance period understood that that can be reconciled to our Christian beliefs. You know, tranquility of mind, be calm, uh, avoid excess, don't be a drunk. Don't be, you know, promiscuous. I mean, there was something really virtuous about Epicurean pleasure that could be reconciled with Christianity. And so many 16th century readers of Lucretius just picked out the moral philosophy, but that left those two other dimensions, the atoms, the physics, and the theology, those gods who don't care. And it was in my main century, the 17th century, where people started thinking, you know, we got to deal with this. The physics just makes more sense than the old Aristotelian way of explaining causation. It just makes more sense. Uh, but where it gets tricky, of course, is that if you buy into the atomism, into the science, does that necessarily mean that you buy into the theology? 
And the answer in the 17th century, whether you're talking about Descartes or the famous scientist Robert Boyle or Francis Bacon or any of the great sort of scientists of the 17th century, the answer is emphatically no. Just Got because it. you embrace atomism doesn't mean you have to embrace their gods. You can argue that the Christian God made the atoms in the first place. Uh, you, you can reconcile Christian theology with ancient atomism, and that's precisely what happened. Uh, and so one of the issues that gets raised in the 17th century is, did the revival of this atomism, did the revival of the physical swerve constitute a kind of cultural swerve away from religion? And my sense is that, that that's absolutely not the case. Uh, gotcha. That the, the rise of science in the 17th century, far from undercutting uh, the Protestant faith in religion, actually served to reinforce it so that you do not get the modernization of the world, if by modernization we mean secularization. Gotcha. Sure the modern world is secular. But I mean, if you just pick up a list of the members of the Royal Society, the, the big scientific society in, in the 1660s, there were so many churchmen in it, so many bishops, so many clergy. Uh, and Bacon himself had argued uh, that far from impugning the Protestant Reformation, the scientific revolution was an extension of it. And, and, and Bacon Interesting. makes that argument. And that's, for my students, that's just mind blowing. Uh, that, that idea that for Bacon, uh, that, that actually it was an extension of what Luther had done. Luther basically had returned our attention to the Bible as God has written, written it, and the scientific revolution was about returning our attention to the book of nature as God has written it. That's science. You pay attention to the evidence as it is. For Bacon, that wasn't secular, that wasn't atheistical, that was precisely Christian. Uh, so, so the whole swerve issue is about, did the world become modern once you discovered, you know, atomism? Uh, did it become secular once you did? And I think the answer to that is that, you know, the answer to that is no, that, that it didn't. But it's a big issue. Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say emphatically no. I mean, to some degree, I guess. We're still living with these ideas, as you say, Will. Right. We're still atomist to some degree, although I haven't kept up with all the, the physics theories, uh, you know, beginning in the 20th century, but atomism is clearly a part of, of who we are and what we are. Um, Absolutely. But it's trickier than that, I guess, I guess I'm saying. I, I do remember that was quite mind blowing when in class you brought that up, how Francis Bacon saw it as an extension of the Protestant Reformation, Absolutely. not as like this brand new project. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's interesting that Victorian historians of science who wanted to see the world as becoming increasingly uh, secular, they would basically say Bacon didn't mean it. He just couldn't say what he really meant. Uh, and the evidence is just overwhelming that he absolutely meant it. I mean, he, he just absolutely meant it. Uh, and he saw himself as doing for the book of nature what Luther had done for the book of scripture, removing human intervention so that you get back to the way that God did it. And in fact, I mean, you know, Bacon will say, well, does that, does that mean removing theology from the study? Of, the, of nature? And his answer is to some degree, yes. But the point that he makes is when you remove theology, you're not removing God. Theology is not God. Theology is the human imagination. It's like now what theories like intelligent design. Uh, those theologies are not, and they're somebody's imagination of how nature ought to be or how they think nature should be. Whereas for Bacon, you look at nature as it is. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They looked at nature as it is. If nature is weird uh, and messy as it sometimes proves to be, 
So be it. And then you can ask, well, why did God make it messy? Why did God make it wacky? Uh, and Bacon's like, we don't know why. That's exactly the point of the Protestant Reformation. There's so much about God that we don't understand. Uh, it's like asking, you know, to know the mind of God. God could have created the world in a million ways. Uh, God just chose to create it in this way. It's the Protestant God of will and power. You know, the, the God who also elects some people, we know not why. Uh, so too, God made the world, the phenomenon of the world in this way, we know not why. So Bacon's mind-blowing. And remember too that for Bacon, and we can talk about Bacon more, but all of this is part of an attempt to transform everything. You know, how we approach the natural world, how we relate to God, social institutions, how we think. I mean, Bacon is, you know, you, Bacon's big. He, he's a big deal in terms of, of changing uh, European culture at this time. So actually, I want to talk about that. And, and how do you get the sense you've read a lot, of, lot. So do you get the sense that Bacon's theories around empiricism and inductive reasoning were really like that new? Was, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, go ahead. No, yeah. Okay, th that's great. Yeah. So they were they were that new. I mean, this well, is not well, something no, let, let me modify that, because I mean, certainly I, it's a great question. I mean, Bacon certainly wasn't the first to argue. So let, first of all, let's take your two terms and separate them. Because there's Definitely. inductive reasoning and then there's empiricism. Uh, not necessarily the same thing. Inductive reasoning is a methodology and in Bacon it's a very elaborate one. It helps you to sift and analyze uh, data. Whereas empiricism is more about collecting data. You just collect data, right? Gotcha. Bacon actually didn't like the word empiricist. He uses it, but almost always pejoratively. Uh, precisely because if you're not analyzing the data or the evidence, then you basically are never going to come up with scientific axioms. And if you don't have scientific axioms, you'll never be able to do anything. Well, let me just put it this way. There were certainly people before Bacon who believed that knowledge should be gained from experience. So in, gotcha. even the, middle, in, in the Middle Ages, his namesake, Roger Bacon, the, the medieval thinker, argued for the value of experience. Chaucer's character, the wife of Bath, um, uh, argues that experience can be really valuable. If you go back to antiquity, I mean, Bacon would point out there's a whole there's a philosopher in antiquity called Sextus Empiricus, a skeptical thinker who believed that you know you need to gain knowledge from experience. Bacon found kindred spirits in antiquity, Democritus and Epicurus, the atomist. He believed that they were sort of on the same page with him. Even Aristotle whose approach to the natural world can be very deductive, that is to say, axiom-driven. Axiom uh, Aristotle, for the most part, is axiom-driven, but Aristotle wrote a whole treatise on animals that seems to actually pay attention to actual animals. So there's certainly writers before Bacon who said, you need to pay attention to experience. You need to pay attention to phenomenon. But Bacon worked that into a program into a whole movement uh, that was a game changer. Uh, and it was really about changing the way people think and what they focus on. Uh, and, and I do think, and, and that's why it's important to separate the inductive method, which he talks about in a text that he, he called the new instrument. Uh, his, his method is certainly distinctive, but he's not the first person to articulate uh, a theory of induction. I mean, that's an old, old idea. Uh, but one of the things that he did do toward the end of his life is he started focusing on what he would call not empiricism, but he, he called it the natural history. And by history, he just meant inquiry. And you basically just spend a lot of time in the lab looking at phenomena, 
looking at material phenomena. Uh, and for Bacon, I, I mean, I think there was something new about that, that just dedication to looking at all the phenomena of the natural world and allowing those natural phenomena to be what they are, not imposing upon them some paradigm of order or purpose that, you know, everything has a purpose. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, that was a big Aristotelian idea. Everything has a purpose. Nature never does anything in vain. Bacon said, maybe or maybe not. That was a really risky, adventurous thing for Bacon to argue because it might impugn divine providence to say that every, something might not have a purpose. So just to look at nature as it is. And in the laboratory, Bacon believes not only should you allow nature to be weird and wacky and monstrous and irregular, you should try to force nature to be weird and wacky and messy and monstrous. Because until you understand all the things that natural phenomena can be, you, you really don't understand nature at all. One other thing about the game changer uh, that Bacon was, uh, not just that focus on natural phenomena, a lingering focus on it, but the uses of that knowledge will in David. Bacon is often quoted as having said, and this is really important for, I think, the modern world and our concern about climate change and, and technology and what we're doing to the environment. Bacon is really famous for having said, knowledge is power, right? And he did say that. But people, I, people who quote that and stop there, I know they don't know anything about Bacon. And there are two things wrong with quoting knowledge is power that Bacon said that. First of all, they're usually quoting an English translation of Latin. And if you look at the Latin, it's clear what Bacon meant. By power, he, he's talking about Adam and Eve and how they were given dominion over the creatures. Well, God did not mean for them to wield tyrannical power over the natural world. I don't think <laughs> Genesis supports that idea. You know, Adam and Eve, just go wreck it. <laughs> you know, dominion meant caretaking that they had the responsibility to take care of the natural world, the Garden of Eden, rather than wreck it as they ended up doing. Uh, so, so power is really dominion and dominion is really caretaking. And you really see that in the second thing that's gotten wrong about knowledge is power. Bacon always ends up saying just after that, and knowledge is charity. He always says that so that it's not just for Bacon that you have scientific knowledge. What's crucial for Bacon is what you do with that knowledge, that you have to make the world better. You have to make human life better. Uh, and, and he's really concerned, for example, about health and longevity. Uh, so so, so the, to what makes Bacon interesting is not just how he changed the way we think about the natural world or what that had to do with Christianity in the 17th century, but the whole technological, social and cultural implications and environmental implications of, of, of the knowledge that we gain from scientific experience. So, so yeah, my sense is that, is that Bacon's a real game changer in a lot of ways. That, that's really well put. Do do you have the feeling that it was, do you know how he came about like the, these ideas? Was it just like in the water? You know, I know he, it's so long ago, right? It's difficult to, to it's get there. Not, we, we actually know a lot about how he came up with his ideas. Um, and, and I'm so glad you asked that because we know a lot more about it now because there's these really dedicated scholars who have discovered manuscripts. So a lot of the old Victorian historians of science just went on Bacon, what Bacon published. 
And what, what we know now is that he left a lot of manuscripts that were not, never published in his own day. And so we can track a lot of his, his sources uh, in, in 16th century thought, for example. But I'm glad you ask about his sources because it helps to complicate this narrative that what Bacon represented was the modernization of the world right. and secularization of the world. Because what we've learned from studying his manuscripts is this. Bacon's interest in atomism, that atomistic physics was very powerful, but it was relatively early in his career. He, in, he eventually abandoned atomism as his go-to physics and ended up preferring a notion of the universe as constituted by spirit. And the, 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 the word for, uh, for spirit uh, that he usually uh, would use was pneuma, uh, P-N-E-U-M-A, as in pneumatology. The word spirit is very tricky because it can represent, it can seem to represent something religious, right? The Holy Spirit. Uh, Bacon insisted that for him, spirit was material as it was for that matter for ancient medical writers such as Galen or ancient Stoics, ancient philosophers such as the Stoics. Pneuma was an old, old, old idea. Uh, Bacon wanted to turn this idea of spirit into something decidedly scientific, something decidedly physical. But nonetheless, I think this idea that he moved from sort of atomism to a physics of spirit really complicates our sense of, of a Bacon who was just increasingly modern and, and, and secular. And a lot of the sources that we know for his thinking really were like Italian scientists who cared uh, about, about notions of spirit. Uh, of whom there were a lot. So yeah, there's some sources, but his inductive method will, I don't think there is a clear source for that. There's a lot of gotcha. writing about method in the Renaissance, but his method is pretty distinctive. And in fact, his readers said as much. They're like, well, this is Bacon's method, take it or leave it, but it, it's pretty distinctive to him. Gotcha. And I'm curious, how widely read was the Novum Organum? Was it uh, in pronunciation? Excuse no, me. If, precisely right. um, how, how, um, yeah, how widely read was that, was, was that manuscript? It, it, Do we have it, a sense? It, yeah, it was. It was widely read. Gotcha. Because, uh, he published it in 1620. Uh, the preface to this new instrument was his announcement of his great plan what we would call the scientific re revolution. He had another phrase for it, but he laid out a six part plan to change human, gotcha. to review education, change education, change human thought, focus on natural phenomena. So this was a big deal. Uh, it was written in Latin. So remember that meant that people in Europe, I mean, basically England at this time, if you were say in France or Italy, people didn't look at England as likely to produce a lot of genius. Like if you were in Italy- Interesting. Yeah, there were very few English writers who made any difference at all to say Descartes. Uh, or oh, the great, wow. Yeah, but Bacon, Bacon was read. Uh, it's not that everybody agreed with him, uh, but he was he, 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 it was very, very influential, even for people who were like, this is wrong or this is misguided or whatever. Yeah, it got read. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned, so England was kind of like an, viewed as an intellectual backwater to a certain extent. Um, you know, if a modern person was to be plopped down and, and I'd love to know, you know, how much we know about the 16th, 17th centuries. Um, but, and, and I guess that's, I guess that would be my first question. How much do we know about the 16th, 17th centuries? Do we have a really good grip on that or, yeah. or not? We, we do. We have a lot of evidence to go on. Uh, now the crucial thing though, that in terms of historical methodology is print versus manuscript. 
Okay. Remember that even though the printing press has been around since the late 15th century, we still have a lot of writers, even in the 17th century, who don't want their stuff printed. They keep it in manuscript. Interesting. And if you only go on what's printed, you get a very limited, very, very partial sense of what people cared about. So increasingly scholarship, historical scholarship has insisted upon going into the archive and digging up manuscripts. And that's been really important to my work uh, that you, you, find, you find new manuscripts that people didn't know about. Uh, so that helps fill out our understanding of what average people cared about uh, and, and what they were willing to articulate when it wasn't gonna go into print. Because remember that print was censored uh, except for a very short period in the 1640s. This is a this is a culture that has a very powerful apparatus of censorship. Interesting. Uh, and so, you know, satire was sometimes, you know, the satires of John Donne kept in manuscript. He didn't want them to get into the hands of people who might really object. Very powerful people might object. So when you're trying to gather evidence about the past, uh, you really need to deal with manuscript material, archival material, as well as print material. Obviously, we're, we're, we're discovering new stuff all the time, which is what makes it incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, uh, you know it, one of the most exciting things in my whole 30-year career is to actually discover a fact. You know, scholars love to offer up interpretations, and I've done my share of that, but there's nothing like discovering a fact. <laughs> That's great. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I wrote a biography of this really amazing physician and writer. Sir Thomas Brown. And ever since Sir Thomas Brown had lived in the 17th century, his fans had wondered, well, you were a doctor, you had a medical dissertation. What was it about? Uh, and, you know, for centuries, people guessed, well, we don't know, but let's guess based on what we know. And I actually discovered it. I found his medical dissertation. And, uh, and the subject of his medical dissertation was smallpox. Uh, finding, oh, really? finding that out was really fascinating because then I realized, oh, He's also really one of the first medical writers and thinkers to be interested in dermatology. Dermatology didn't really become a thing until the 18th century. He's one of the first medical writers to think, oh, skin. Skin is interesting because if you wow. look at old anatomy books, you know, on the cover of anatomy books, you'll have a, a cadaver and the skin has been sort of peeled away. Right. So the skin is just the cover. Don't, who cares? But in the 17th century, you know, Brown keeps talking about skin and, 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 you know, what skin tells us about the human and skin diseases. And then when I realized he'd, he'd, he'd written about smallpox, that helped to explain that. So discovering a fact, there's nothing like it, uh, you know, and, and, and it really helps to advance our understanding of, of, of the past. That's I, yeah, before we get off, by the way, I want to make sure we talk about the Civil War. So just, just okay. That. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let, let's move on to that. Yeah. Uh, English Civil War, I, I think, not talked about enough. It uh, is a, it really just wild stuff happens. Uh, wild. Yeah. Uh, what, what are so? I guess put it some of the big important takeaways uh, that you've had from studying the English Civil War that people would just not encounter or think well, about. Well, I'm so glad you asked that because one way to sort of think about the modernization and secularization of the world in the 17th century, uh, another twist on that is, and this is really fascinating to my students when they discover that people who lived in the 17th century might well have been more radical <laughs> than people now. That's really hard That's for weird. them to understand. Yes. So for those in the audience uh, who don't know about the English Civil War, and you also asked me in your preliminary, you know, how has John Milton been gotten wrong? Uh, John Milton, one of the great voices of the English Civil War. Let's just say 
that the English Civil War, which started in 1642, led not just to the execution of a monarch, Charles I, on January 30th, 1649, but it led in 1649 to the overthrow of the monarchy. Now, I would bid your audience to walk around the streets of London today and ask you know, English people now, are you prepared just to get rid of the monarchy? I mean, maybe <laughs> nowadays they are. Uh, I mean, given all the stuff that's coming up with the monarchy, uh, with Harry and Meghan. But, uh, you know, I mean, there was like a very brief, you know, you know, Republican movement in London in like the 1980s, but it died a pretty fast death. Right. People love their monarchy. And yet here in 1649, we have the overthrow of the monarchy and the establishment of a government that centered on uh, the House of Commons because they got rid of the House of Lords as well. So no House of Lords, no monarchy, the House of Commons and then an executive council of state. That's the friggin' government in the 1650s. Uh, I mean, it was a very volatile, unstable period. The 1650s, they ended up changing the constitution, the government a few times. And then of course, because setting up a whole new government is hard, you have to establish international relations with every country you do business with. Like over in France and in Italy in the 1650s, they're like, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? What's going on? Uh, There are a lot of royalists around Europe who think that the English people have done a horrible thing. So this this is a, a you know a period of incredible instability and uncertainty, but incredible radicalism. This is a period in which you know they, they had a state religion until this period. They do away with that. The Church of England is done away with. So you start getting in the 1650s a group uh, groups of Christians who are wildly radical, who basically believe that they're moved by the Holy Spirit. That means they don't need a church. They don't need any kind of church at all. One of those groups, by the way, is a group that we like to call the Quakers. That's right. Uh, but in the 1650s, the Quakers were called the Quakers, not because they like to sit around in meeting houses and sing <laughs> Kumbaya and be all peaceful and quiet. Uh, in the 1650s, they were badass. They were called the Quakers because they were so moved by the Holy Spirit that they would just quake with zeal. And they were also kind of really politi- politically radical. You know, they would go into churches, including women, by the way, women moved by the Holy Spirit. And these women Quakers would go, you male preacher, step down from your pulpit. You do not have the Holy Spirit with you. You get these other radical groups that have these really colorful names like the, the levelers, whose name basically meant they wanted to level political power. They wanted a lot more people to have voting rights, unheard of in this period. The diggers, who basically said there shouldn't be private property. We should have communes. And they literally went out and started digging up private property as though, as though it was theirs. The fifth monarchist, who thought the kingdom of heaven was coming back to earth now and that they needed to take action. So you get this outbreak of all these really interesting radical groups, politically radical socially radical, uh, religiously radical. uh, And yet, you know, obviously all this stuff happens almost overnight. uh, And the people of England are, you know, made anxious by it, by the uncertainty, by the volatility. uh, And by the end of the 1650s, they're kind of tired of the chaos. And so they restore the monarchy, they restore the House of Lords, they restore the Church of England. And so there's a real sense of, do we have a kind of progression toward democracy? Uh, yes and no. I mean, 
a lot was changed uh, before the 1640s. A monarch could call parliament and send parliament home at will. Parliaments were really subservient to monarchs. In the 1640s, they passed a law that that, in, that, uh, that basically required there to be a meeting of parliament uh, every three years. This is a huge deal. Now, they restored the monarchy, but you all know that somewhere along the line, really in the late 17th century and 18th century, the monarch became inc in increasingly without power. Right. The, the prime minister became the powerful figure and parliament became increasingly powerful. So did we get modernization in the 17th century? That's a hard one to answer, yes and no. A lot changed, but some things didn't change. They're, they're still paying a lot of taxes to Elizabeth II. Right, uh, so, exactly. So, so it's a really incredible period. And John Milton, one of my favorite writers, and I teach a class on him, you know, he's usually, you know, uh, known as a kind of Puritan. Right. And people, when they translate Puritan into killjoy, doesn't like, you know, the body, doesn't like pleasure. Uh, it's, it's preposterous. I mean, Milton wrote a famous poem called Paradise Lost in the which just about everybody is having sex. Uh, Adam and Eve are having sex. And by the way, not just for the purposes of procreation, uh, the be fruitful, multiply uh, formula you find in Genesis. They're having sex because it's, ple it's pleasurable. Even Milton's angels have a version of, of, of sex. Uh, Milton is not Puritan in that sense of let's be buttoned up and against the body. Uh, in fact, Milton, to some degree, is though a profound Christian, also a materialist. He believes everything's made out of, out of physical body. Uh, he's also politically radical he, and, and very bold. He's one of the voices that defends before, <laughs> before just about anyone else is the killing of Charles I, the overthrow of monarchy. Uh, when the monarchy gets restored in 1660, you can bet that Milton is on a hit list. It's amazing he survived. Uh, the wrath of King Charles II, uh, the, the son of the, of the executed King Charles I, it's, it's amazing Milton survived to write his poem, Paradise Lost. Uh, so Milton and this period are really, really radical and out there in a, in a lot of interesting ways. Uh, and, and obviously, I mean, I should say this, Will, uh, when the American Revolution happened, right. you, you can bet that the English Revolution, the English Civil War was much on their minds. Uh, Milton, very popular among the American revolutionaries, uh, so, so, so the English Civil War was really seen by the American revolutionaries as a prelude to what they stood for uh, in, in the 1770s. That's, that's really interesting. I, I wanted to bring up that. So there's a book, I, I can't remember the name. It's a history I just finished on the American Revolution. Right. And it views the American Revolution more in the light of it's actually kind of an English inner English conflict, not like, and so it's kind of, kind of like a class conflict or something. What factionally how can we think of the English Civil War? Like who is a royalist and who is, you know, with our Oliver Cromwell? It's such a great question. There have been attempts to explain the English Civil War uh, as a socioeconomic phenomenon to, to offer up say Marxist interpretation of it. There was a very, very wonderful historian called Christopher Hill who basically argued that these groups, the levelers, the, 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 the diggers, that they were, it was history from the bottom up that you're talking about lower class or lower ranked people who are now empowered uh, to, to, to change the world, to, to turn it upside down. There's something misleading about that though uh, because I mean, Cromwell was pretty well off too. Uh, right? he was very well I mean, off. The, the, this yeah. counter elites. I mean, there was this counter like culture of elites or something. I don't, uh, I don't know. 
No, that's precisely right. Cromwell was a man of property. Uh, in fact, when the Lavalers started arguing that they sh you, sh you should extend voting rights, Cromwell said no. He said, you need to have, you need to have property to have a vote. Uh, the leader of his army, Cromwell was second in command of the army against the king. The leader was a guy called Thomas Fairfax, uh, uh, Sir Thomas Fairfax, a man of property with a country estate in Yorkshire. So it wasn't a Marxist revolution. In fact, the, the sort of best way to think about it, royalists tended to be actually, uh, many royalists were from the lower class. Uh, the, the supporters of, uh, in fact, you probably would find something similar today. Uh, you would probably find among the lower classes in England a very heartfelt support for the monarchy. I'm not sure that's true, uh, but there was something about the monarchy that really was comforting to poor people at this time. Uh, the monarch really, for example, supported holidays, Christmas. Uh, and, and so, so a lot of poor people were like, a lot of laborers were like, we can get on, on board with that. But a lot of the people who opposed the king were from the elite, uh, from, from the social elite. Uh, and if you think about the history of revolution against monarchy in England, the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta in the 13th century was basically uh, engineered by a lot of the chief leading subjects of the crown. So I think Christopher Hill is right that there are some social economic implications when you have groups like the diggers and levelers right. uh, standing up for their rights. But I think predominantly the power structure of the parliament and, and the opponents of the king were from the, the social elite. Interesting. Yes, it's very interesting to just to kind of think about and hear those echoes you know, today. And you mentioned that, you know, this conflict, it happened quickly. Like people were surprised by it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any sense? Why was it like, you know, yeah. food prices shot up? Was it like, I'm what? so glad you asked that because I, I now realize that what I've said is very controversial to think about overnight. And by, and by the way, just a point about the American revolution too, we're still with the electoral college, for example, we're still struggling with the extent to which what happened with the American revolution was elitist versus, you know, popularist. We're still struggling right. with, with that issue, which was it? Uh, and of course, the answer, it was kind of both and. Uh, historians will are profoundly divided over whether or not the English Civil War was long term in its causes or short term in its causes. I tend to think that the Civil War of the 1640s was relatively short term. Uh, that, that even though the ideas that were in, in, in play, royal sovereignty versus parliamentary authority, Obviously, that conflict was to some degree longstanding. But frankly, here's how history's weird. The guy who came into power in 1625, Charles I, had an older brother. His name was Prince Henry. Prince Henry was loved. Just and, and Prince Henry just was so different from his brother, Charles I. Charles I was highly inflexible. His father, James, had theorized divine right monarchy, but Charles practiced it rigorously. And I think it's arguable that if Charles I's brother, Henry, had not died before he became king, if Henry had become king, you wouldn't have gotten an English civil war. Uh, you would have had conflict about politics and religion, but I don't think it would have come to a civil war. I think Charles really forced it into a war. So gotcha. if, if we're asking the ideas in play, about, polit about politics and religion, I think those are more long-term, but the war I think was more short-term. There were, there, there gotcha. were short-term causes. So something like Charles I was 
really a poor monarch and and uh, that I, gave yeah he, he i mean look some historians have tried to defend him he was a man of principle <laughs> uh right uh, a very fine historian kevin sharp has tried to argue this in a very long book about charles the first whatever else you can say about him the man had principles we can admire that well yes and no but i mean i think there is there there you know history works at a lot of different levels one is the level of ideas but the other is the level of circumstances and chance and personalities. I mean, we know this, you know, we live in, in a culture that really cares about personalities and, and that's not a new thing, you know, personality and the way that a, a politician interacts with people can make an enormous difference in, in, into what happens. And I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that when you try to explain the English Civil War, like so many complicated historical events, you got to weigh in a lot of different kinds of causes. Right. It really is layered and it works at a lot of different levels. And to understand the whole thing, you got to try to understand all that. Got it. And that's what makes it challenging. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Reed, I don't want to keep you on too long. I know we're, we're coming up on an hour. So just let me know. Cry, uncle. If yeah. Okay. You just get, uh, I had one more big question. I think it, it was, uh, you know, if you're an everyday person in 16th, 17th century England, um, you know, what, what are the, what are the beliefs that, you know, an, an everyday person today would just find so bizarre. We couldn't, yeah. you couldn't even get our mind around it. Yeah. I, it's, it's a great question because to some degree, I think the difference between us and them can be really exaggerated. For example, historians used to say, well, in the 17th century, parents didn't feel emotion about their, about their children dying <laughs> because it happened all the time. Which oh, is Jesus. Great. It, which is true. Like if I had been born in the 17th century, I would have died it too. <laughs> I, I, had, I had scarlet fever. I would have been a goner. Uh, and historians used to argue, you know, they just, they just didn't, they just couldn't afford to feel emotion when a child died. And that's simply untrue. The evidence is overwhelming that parents then as now could just be devastated when they lost a child, when they lost an infant. Uh, that, that was really, and one of the you know, wonderful things about writing a biography of the doctor I wrote about the physician was realizing that bedside manner was just as important then as it, as it is now. That he was hired by a lot of patients, not just because he was good at their version of medicine, but because he comforted them when they were really, really upset. But there were beliefs in the 17th century that are really hard to understand. For example, they burnt people because they thought they were witches. It happened. Uh, you know, and uh, one of my favorite works of history is by a historian called Stuart Clark, and it's called Thinking with Demons. And what Stuart Clark does in this ginormous book, it's about witchcraft. And he sets himself this challenge. People in the past were human beings, just like us. And yet thousands of them thought it was a good idea to hunt down witches and burn them or kill them. I'm a historian. It's my job to understand why human beings could think that. Uh, and I just love that book because he does what historians, it's so easy for us to stand in judgment of the wackiness of the past. Right. How could they, you know? And yet, you know, it's my hope that a hundred years from now, when historians look at us, they'll be kind to us because you can bet they're going to look back at 2020 and they're going to go, Americans, how could they? <laughs> what and were I they just thinking? Hate it. Yeah, I, what were they thinking? 
And I just hate it when modern people just look down their noses at the past, like how stupid they were, how lacking in social justice they were, how blind they were, because guess what? We're still pretty lacking in social justice. We still have a long way to go and we have 400 years on them. That's right. So, so things like witchcraft uh, is a good example of the, how could they think that was a good idea? And I just really believe that historians earn their, their paycheck when they say, okay, let's really try to understand how they could have. Right. Uh, without just demonizing them, without just saying how stupid they were, how brutal they were. Uh, I mean, certainly there's that. Um, issues of race are trickier in the 17th century. Uh, England was only starting to get involved in the slave trade, but certainly that's an example of uh, a mentality from the past that's hard to understand. Uh, how you could think it was a good idea to own a human being. And, and this is an interesting, again, this idea of was the 17th century a kind of trajectory that led from kind of old, archaic, stupid ideas to progressive modern ideas. Racial identity is tricky because if you look at Milton again, Milton's worried that he won't be able, we talked about England as a backwater earlier. Well, England's a backwater because it's to the North. Uh, where people are very, very white in Scandinavia and England. And so racial theory at the beginning of the 17th century was actually, if you want really brilliant people, you go south. Well, if you go south, that means you end up not just in Italy, you end up in Africa. Uh, Interesting. Where, and so there was a sense that uh, Egypt in particular was associated with philosophical genius. Uh, and some Renaissance writers argued, well, every genius from antiquity, everyone who was philosophically or spiritually enlightened, guess what? They spent time in Egypt. That included Plato, but it also included Moses, right? So right. you can't argue that at the outset of the 17th century, blackness was inferior to whiteness if what you're testing is intellect, right? So, so it's weird. And, and England's not yet involved in the slave trade. Sometime over the course of the next 200 years, that got flipped. Things got very different. It, it, things got very different. So when you're trying to say, has history gotten more progressive? Have we moved through along a trajectory that leads to social justice? That's a very hard question to answer when you take questions of race. Now, gender is a really interesting issue. Uh, I don't really have time to get into that, but certainly there are ideas about gender that are really backwards in the period I, I, I study. On the other hand, Americans haven't had a female president yet. Right. Whereas England did have female monarchs. Uh, you know, Elizabeth I was one of the most powerful political figures in the history of England. So, so those kinds of questions, are we more progressive? Yes and no. Uh, and that if you're a really genuine historian, you have to answer that in all of its complexity. Um, so, so yeah, there are definitely ideas that we look at and we go, whoa, uh, what, what were they thinking? That's great. And a lot of, th this is part of the reason why I really enjoyed like your class and learning from you. Uh, you know, there's this like idea of like, 
wig history that things are just rocketing you yep. know it's this court it's straight straight to you know this big star up here and i'm like man it just feels like it's it's much more nuanced than that there's a lot of weird things you know well, yeah well i mean you know you're, you're 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 referring to that theory of history that was so important right through the 20th century that you know political historical events are basically almost inevitable right history is moving toward uh, uh social justice democracy and I don't know where you all are on this. I mean, I look at countries like, I don't know, Turkey, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you look around the world, America, I mean, we have not yet, as far as I can tell, had a president who does not identify as Christian. That's right. I mean, have we? I mean, maybe Jefferson, I guess Jefferson, maybe. But in our modern age, we have not yet had a president. I mean, could, let, let me put it this way. Could someone run for president and when in America now, if they were Jewish, if they were Muslim, if they were atheist, could they win? And if the answer to that is no, then the idea that our modern America is somehow secular uh, or that we've moved toward a sort of secular civil society where religion and politics are kept apart, no. Uh, it's Not just, true. It's, it's a really good point. Yeah, it's it's pretty. It's a, especially the you know an atheist president. It's fairly unthinkable. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable as far as I can tell. Yeah, that, that's really well put. Well, Reed, thank you so much for coming um, coming on. I, I really enjoyed this, and I, I really I just wanted to reiterate and and have you just mention how important the study of history is. I think it's one of the most important. It, if not, you know, it's, it's incredibly important. I think it's much more important than social science to be completely honest. Um, and, too, but there you go. <laughs> and, and part of that is, you know, we don't call physics, you know, physical science. We don't call chemistry. Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't know. That's you know a good you, one. Yeah. Just something to think about. But I, I do think history, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's gotten underrated and it's something we need to keep in mind just to understand and, and get out of this presentism kind of lens yeah. we've got. Yeah, it's blinders. Really, well, really can, devastating. Can I, can I break in and ask Reed one question before we leave? Sure. Um, Reed, we've had the good fortune to um, to talk to some really bright people, very good thinkers that know yeah. their subject matter. Looks like, yeah, unbelievably well, and they usually are someone in the modern world. So this question even fits better today because you know the world through a longer lens than yeah. most of the people we talk to. And so I'm going to ask you, yeah, go are ahead. you pessimistic? Or are you optimistic about the future? Uh, I, I'm pretty optimistic, David. Uh, and part of that is because I'm a teacher. And, and that means I, you know, I, I'm with young people. And I just think this generation, I think will, you know, will uh, and, and his generation, you guys are just incredible. You're so bright. You understand things like the need to study history. And yet I think you're also really, in, you care about issues. You care about the climate. You care about social justice. And I'm just really moved by you all. I think that you all are really in a position to make this world a lot better. Um, and I think a lot of the problems are caused by people who are a lot older than you are. So frankly, I, I, when I deal with my students, I, I mean, this is why I keep teaching. My students have never been better than they are right now. And I've been teaching 30, almost 40 years, including when I was a grad student, they've never been better than they are right now. And they're better not just because they're dedicated to the, the, the subject I teach, but because in addition to being great scholars, they really care about the world. They care about suffering. 
they care about making the world better. So David, I, I would say, I mean, I can be pretty grumpy at times, um, but that's usually has to do with like traffic or something like that. <laughs> I mean, there, I tell you, there are a few issues that, that worry me. I, I don't know what we're gonna do about guns. I, I really don't know what we're gonna do about, about, about guns because it seems to me, I can't think of any kind of policy that will make it better at this point. Uh, yeah. but, but, but now I'm, I'm really outside my, my expertise, but there are, there are issues that worry me. I mean, I'm incredibly worried about, about gun violence and I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I don't believe no one should have a gun. It's not that at all. But when I have to, when I walk across campus, if I ever walk across campus again, you won't believe this, but I'm always looking for the shooter. I'm always looking for the person with the gun because, I mean, I don't know if you all know this, we actually had a, a campus shooting in Chapel Hill in the 1990s. Uh, actually, a former English major who basically tried to kill a lot of people in Chapel Hill. Uh, whenever I go into a classroom, my first question about that physical space is, if I have a shooter, what will I do? How will I deal with it? So there's certainly issues about American culture in particular that, that, that worry me. And I can't see, because I'm not smart enough, I can't see the way out. But I think on the whole, I really believe in Will's generation. I really believe that, that you guys are, are going to do amazing things, not to put pressure on you, Will. But uh, yeah, I, I'm an optimist, David. I really am. That's good. Thanks. That's good. Well, yeah. Reed, do you have any parting thoughts, anything, and, and, and where can people find your work? Oh, just uh, uh, the, the biography of Thomas Brown or any of the work I've done, just in any university library, you can find it. Uh, I mean, it's available through like Amazon, but it's probably too expensive. Uh, but uh, yeah, just any university library will, will have it. But also, I mean, if anyone's interested in the study of history, just, just you know, they should just email me in the English department at UNC. I mean, one of the things I've started doing in all my classes is, I know a lot of you are science majors out there or social science majors out there, but if you're interested in studying history, let me know. And, and I'm getting people who, who, who are. That's cool. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, I'm really honored to have been on with you two. Uh, you, your, your lineup before me uh, has just been amazing. Uh, and and it just, the whole project just seems great. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Reed. We really appreciate it. It's good to see you both. Uh, stay Thanks, healthy. Thanks, Reed. Yeah, take care. Bye. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.